in your Bible or your, your Bible app in Hosea, chapter 12. We've been going through this, this uh, book in the Bible as um, our family of Harbor Churches and just traveling through this really, really striking book in the Old Testament, where in just how uh, strong the language is, where how powerful the images are, and just how uh, powerful God is, and how merciful He is. We've got a few more uh, weeks in Hosea, and looking forward to closing out the series. We're going to be in chapter 12, verse 2, uh, all the way to chapter 13, verse 1, so about our chapter's worth uh, today. Well, I want to start off with this little illustration, uh, as we think about this, this topic of change, this topic of change. Um, maybe you've heard growing up that analogy of a frog in a boiling pot. You've heard that analogy, like if you wanted to boil a frog in a pot, and I don't know even know why you would do that, uh, but, but you wouldn't just throw a frog or put a frog in boiling water because that frog would jump right out. Right? Instead, uh, if you wanted to cook a frog, and I don't know why anyone would, um, you would put that, that frog in regular room temperature water and then slowly turn up the heat, and then eventually that frog would still stay in there because the heat is slowly being turned up, and it would come to a point in time where that frog would, would mock it, right, because it's too hot for the frog. You ever heard that analogy, right, it, it talks about, and, and sometimes people use that analogy to talk about, hey, you know, like, if you want to catch something, right, bring about that change slowly instead of quick right away. Um, but here's the thing, right, and I'm sure most of us heard that analogy, it's actually not scientifically true, right, they found that, that if you were to put a frog, and again, I don't know why you do this, but they tried this, putting a frog in room temperature water, and as the heat slowly turned up, the frog is smart and hops right out when it starts getting too uncomfortable. So that analogy actually is not, it's not scientifically uh, proven or true. But the point being that, that, that um, it, even though it, it's not true for frogs, it can be true for human beings. And that's what we've been reading about in Hosea, where... Israel was in a state of sinning against God. And the judgment that they were going to get, that they deserved, was coming. It wasn't right away. It was slowly, and it was coming, and God was warning them and, and in compassion telling them they need to change. But they still remained in the pot. God was calling them to jump out of the pot because it's going to get to a temperature where they're not going to be able to endure it. But as we know through Israel's history, they're going to stay in the pot. And Assyria is going to come to them, right? the, the, the mega superpower of that day, and they're going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom, which is Judah, uh, a little while later, the Babylonian Empire is going to come and going to conquer Judah. And they're going to be taken into exile. They were in the pot. The temperature was turning up but they didn't want to jump out because of their love for sin. God was calling them for ch to change, but they were unwilling to change. What we're going to be looking at and thinking about uh, this afternoon is the good change that God wants to bring to his people. The good change that God wants to bring to his people. Again, we're going to read about Israel. They're not going to change. As a majority, there's going to be a faithful remnant, as there always is, a faithful remnant that, that does call uh, that, that does turn from their sin and turn to God. But 
as a majority, Israel does not change. But for us, right, the opportunity and, and to see the change that God wants to bring is a real thing that we can look forward to. So let's jump right in into uh, Hosea chapter 12, verse 2. It reads, The Lord has an indictment against Judah. I think about like a court case. And here's what, what, what uh, the defendant, Israel, is being faced with. And, and Judah, the southern kingdom. He says, And I will punish Jacob, Israel, according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Let's stop there. Right, so God here is bringing up the charge against Israel right, and Judah. So it's all of his people that he called out of Egypt. And he's saying that basically they're just like their ancestor, Jacob. Just like their ancestor, Jacob. But if you don't know, right, God called Abraham to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave his country. And through Abraham, right, he was going to build a nation, right, Israel. Abraham had a son, uh, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Right? And through, through these sons, as well as, as Joseph's sons, God right, created the nation of Israel. And so Jacob right, is one of these, these ancestors um, that, that brought about the nation of Israel. And so God is comparing right, the nation of Israel and Judah to their ancestor, Jacob. Now, what do we know about Jacob? Right? Real, real quick reminder, real quick story, right, is that when Jacob came out of the womb, he was a twin. Right? His brother came out first, Esau. But then when Jacob came out, Right after Esau, he was holding on. He was grasping Esau's heel, right? And so they named him Jacob, the heel grabber, right? And, and that, that name Jacob has these, these uh, that, uh, that name Jacob implies someone that is deceiving, who is uh, 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 someone who, who gets through deception. I mean, he's literally grabbing on to the brother's heel as he's coming out of the womb. And Jacob lives up to his name as a deceiver. Jacob tricked his brother Esau into to getting his birthright as the oldest son. Esau was super hungry. Jacob was cooking up some, some yummy beef stew or, or, or um, bean, bean soup. And um, Jacob offered it to his brother who was hungry because he was out hunting food, hunting game. And Esau's like, I want to eat. And, and Jacob's like, give me your birthright as, as the oldest, right? Because I want that, that prestige. I want that. Um, that prominence as the oldest son. And Esau's like, I'm hungry. This birthright doesn't mean anything to me right now. And so Jacob tricks his brother into giving him the birthright. But not only that, when, when, he, when uh, his, his father Isaac's about to die, and Isaac was going to bless his, his uh, firstborn Esau with, with a prayer, a blessing, uh, Jacob tricked his father by dressing up like, um, like Esau with, with his mother's help came into his father and basically said, hey, I'm, I'm Esau, bless me. And so Isaac ends up blessing Jacob with the blessing that was meant for the firstborn, Esau. And Esau found out about it, got so mad that he wanted to kill 
uh, Jacob, his younger brother, because he, again, tricked in order to get. Yeah, so this family has issues, right? This family has issues. And that, that's very encouraging, right, as a side note, where right? is that God works in messy families, right? And that, that's very encouraging to hear. But Jacob was a deceiver. And so God is saying that just like how Jacob was a deceiver, Israel is a deceiver as well. They deceive other people uh, through selfish gain, and they think they can deceive God into offering him half-hearted worship while giving their hearts to other gods, even though they covenanted with God that he would be the only one whom they would worship. These, uh, the nation of Israel is a deceiver. And what God is calling them to be changed by is to be transformed from being a deceiver to being dependent upon him. Let's look at verse 4. Speaking of Jacob, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with him. Right, so Jacob ends up, right, Jacob finds out Esau's coming, and he's afraid that Esau wants to kill him because he tricked him. And so Jacob is alone at night, and, and either an angel of the Lord or God himself wrestled with Jacob at night. It was this awesome wrestling match. And Jacob just clung to God, the angel of the Lord, and wouldn't let go. He says, I, 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 I need you to bless me. Right, I'm at my end. Right, I, can't, I can't beat my brother. Right? I, I, can't, I can't get myself out of this situation. And then in Genesis, the angel, or God, asked him, what is your name? What is your name? He asked Jacob. God knows his name. But remember the last time in the Bible that, that Jacob was asked his name, he said Esau to his dad, right? Because he wanted to deceive. And what does Jacob say? Uh, what does Jacob say? He says, Jacob. Jacob. Right? In other words, he's saying, all right, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I am, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. I am the heel grabber. Right? And from there, we, we see this transformation of Jacob. Not only does his hip get dislocated, right, but, but he goes to meet Esau. And Esau doesn't, doesn't attack him. But we see this move to dependency that Jacob experiences. And what it seems Hosea seems to be saying here is that just like Jacob moved from being a deceiver to being someone who is dependent, you, Israel and Judah, you need to move from being a deceiver to being uh, dependent on God. That's the kind of change that God wants to bring to us. He wants to move us from being deceptive to try to get what we want to being dependent and trusting God. Because it's easy, even as followers of Jesus, to be deceptive in order to get what we want. We can even, you know, like try to think we can deceive God into getting what we want. I know I have, right? You, you ever thought things like, you, you know that you shouldn't do something, right? Like you shouldn't buy that thing. It's just not a good purchase. Or you shouldn't get into that relationship. Or you shouldn't, you know, get involved with that activity because it just leads you down unhealthy paths. And then we kind of rational, you know, rationalize in our hearts, well, God, I'm going to go in this direction, and if you really don't want me to do it, stop me. Throw something in the way. See, in actuality, our hearts have already decided what we want to do, right? And we think that we can deceive God into, into getting what we want. But we can also do that with other people. We can do that with other Christians, right? 
Right? We can, in our hearts, know the thing that we want, and we know it's wrong, right? We know it's not the right decision, and we got brothers and sisters in our life that might question us about that because they love us and care about us. And, and what do we do to, to, to get them to be quiet? We say this to them, right? Oh, God told me. I was praying to God, and God told me that this relationship is good for you. I was praying to God, and, you know, it, it just seemed like God just is leading me to buy this thing that I know is outside of my budget, that I know is going to put me in terrible debt, but God told me, trust in him. Now, what is that Christian brother or sister going to do? God told him, didn't he? Kind of stuck, right? We, we put that brother or sister in a corner because, like, well, they're going to argue with God. But we can do that at times, that right? we can get manipulative through emotions, through words, uh, we, we can try to deceive other people in order to get what we want. And it could, even, it could even be a good thing that we want. But the way that we go about doing it right, is manipulative and deceptive. That's Jacob for you. Right? He was all about that, about deception and manipulating to get what he wanted. And God brought him to a place of desperation. Right? His older brother is mad. Right? He, he thinks. And so he's scared. And so he has to depend on the Lord. That's the kind of dependency that God wants to bring us in, where we can trust him in circumstances where we might not be getting what we want. And then that frees us. when We're not trying to deceive and manipulate. That frees us to truly trust God and then love the people around us. God says in verse 6, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast, to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Trust in God. Depend upon God. Don't get things out of manipulation and deceit. Don't treat people that way. That's not loving. But trust God and love others and do what is right. He brings us from deception to dependency. But not only that, God brings us from pride to humility. Let's read on in verse 7. A merchant in whose hands our false balances he loves to oppress. Right? This is Israel. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. So look at the pride there with the eyes and the myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell intense, as in the days of the appointed feast. Notice that Ephraim is taking the credit for themselves. So Ephraim is a tribe of Israel, and uh, they're part of the northern kingdom. But Ephraim at times can also be referred to as the entire northern kingdom. So it's just based upon context here. But Ephraim here is saying, look, I am rich and I found wealth for myself, right? They're attributing their success and their prominence, and this, this could possibly be referring to the tribe. They think that they got to where they got by their own labors. But notice in contrast, verse 9, what does God say? I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, right? He was the one that rescued them from sin. They were enslaved in Egypt. They could do nothing to free themselves. They were helpless. And God is reminding them, you, are, you could not help yourself. It was I who freed you and rescued you out of slavery. It's I who brings success and fruitfulness. But 
Israel attributed it to themselves. And so what does God say? He says that he will again make them dwell in tents, like when they were wandering in the desert. James 4, verse 6, God, uh, James reminds us that God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right, someone who is humble is not someone that puts themselves down and self-deprecating. That's not humility. That's still focused on themselves. Right, someone who is humble understands God for who he is. Right, God is great. God is powerful. He is the Almighty. He is the one that gives life and sustains life. Humility understands who God is, but humility also understands who we are. Right, we are sinners. We are weak. We are, apart from God's grace, unable to do anything of spiritual significance that God would call good, apart from his grace. Right? The Bible speaks about that, that we were, in Ephesians 2, we were, by nature, children of wrath. Right? True humility understands that, that we are not inherently good, as, as uh, you know, uh, popular culture tries to teach, but we are inherently Children of wrath. Wow. Meaning children deserving of wrath. That's strong. But when we truly believe that and understand that, then it makes sense why Jesus had to die on the cross. Jesus would not need to die for someone who is inherently good. If human beings were inherently good, then why would Jesus need to come and die on the cross? But because human beings are inherently evil, Jesus has to come to redeem us. And so humility, true humility, recognizes that, like, in and of ourselves, there is, uh, we are uh, dependent on God and unable to turn to God. And so true humility then turns to God in, in, in helplessness and says, I need your help. Ephraim did not believe this. They thought that they gained by their own efforts and labors, that they deserved. And so God, in his love, will take away will remove. When I was um, working for preschool, uh, one of the things that I like to do was, you know, I was taking kids on the monkey bars. And, and most of the, these preschoolers, they can't do the monkey bars. So it's the slow progression. So I'll carry them from monkey bar to monkey bar. But then every so often, there'll be a kid that says, I'm going to do it on my own. Let go, Mr. John. I got it. So I'm like, all right. And I know what's going to happen. I'm going to carry them to the first monkey bar. Their face is going to be struggling and then they're going to call out for me for help. And so, but I still let them because they're super insistent that they can do it on their own. So I carry them to that first monkey bar, hold them, let go, but I'm right there, watch them struggle and kind of enjoy it because I'm right. And um, they call out to me, Mr. John, help. And so I, and so, and so I, I grab them, right, to, to, to help them. But they needed to understand that they couldn't do it on their own. Now, I want them to be able to do it on their own, but they're just not at that place of, of doing it. Right? And there are times in our lives that we forget that every, you know, everything that we can do ultimately is from God. Right? We are like a, a leaf that's stuck to a branch. We need to be stuck to the branch to live. Once we pluck, we're plucked off the branch, we're dead, right? even though we might look alive. In the same way, Jesus talked about that. Right, he, he's the vine, right, with the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. And at times, when we're, we're, we're operating in pride, he may step back. 
he may take away to remind us that we truly need him, right? Isn't that true where when, when things are taken away in our lives, we get more desperate for God? We get more prayerful? Our prayers get more intense because we recognize, oh gosh, I really aren't in control. And, and, and it's, it's, it's actually love that God would do that. He's right there. He, he's right there next to us, just like I was there next to the preschooler. I was going to catch him. But that preschooler needed to understand that he needed my help. And so God at times will take away or seemingly step back when he's still there so that we would understand how much we need him, so that we would turn to him. He brings us from pride to humility. And then finally, right, God grows us. He brings us from idolatry to being worshipers of him. Let's read on in verse 10. It reads, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Right here we, we, we hear the, the, the judgments that are coming upon Israel because of their rebellion against God, for their worship of idols. In verse 11 where it talks about the iniquity in Gilead or the sacrifice in Gilgal, the sacrifice of bulls. These are speaking of these altars that were built in the northern kingdom to sacrifice to foreign gods. And God is saying they're going to come to nothing. Their altars will be like stone heaps, right? It's going to be uninhabited. It's going to be unused because these idols really are nothing. They can give no life. And judgment was coming. Even Ephraim in verse 1, chapter 13, right? He was exalted in Israel. The tribe of Ephraim was a prominent tribe in the northern kingdom, but it wouldn't be so. They would be also taken into exile. Right, again, God is warning them. They're like the frog in the pot. Right? The temperature is turning up. They need to jump out. They need to change. They need to turn to God. And God is calling them. And God reminds them of, of the mercy that he gives to them. God sends to them prophet after prophet. Right? In verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It is I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. So God is sending his people, these, these representatives that are calling the people to change, to turn from their sin. Uh, look down to verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. See, when God uh, rescued his people out of Egypt, he raised up the prophet Moses, who led the people out of Egypt. And then when they finally entered into the promised land, God raised up the prophet Samuel to help lead his people and, and point them to him and away from the idols. And so here's where Hosea is going with this, right? He's saying, look, God raised up the prophet Moses to lead you out of Egypt. God raised up prophets like Samuel to help you remain faithful to God. And right now, God has raised up me, Hosea, the prophet, 
to warn you to turn away from your idols and to turn to the living God. And this is all God's mercy. He's sending prophet after prophet to call his people back to himself. Because God is just like Jacob who wants to to redeem his people. Look at verse 12. It says, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. He fled because he was fleeing Esau. And there Israel, that's Jacob, because God changed Israel's, Jacob's name to Israel. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. Right, so Jacob went down to his uncle Laban, right, and he ends up working for, um, um, uh, working for his daughter. Right? And what happens? Right, Jacob gets deceived. Jacob the deceiver gets tricked by his uncle Laban. Instead of giving uh, uh, Rachel to be his wife, because that's who he wanted to marry, Laban instead gave the sister, Leah, right, in order to be married. And so uh, Jacob gets tricked, but he, but he ends up working another seven years and gets Rachel, right? And, what, and, and this is just messy again, right? Messy, messy. But in a perfect way, God went to Egypt and rescued himself, right, a bride, and that's Israel, and brought them out of Egypt. He is, in a sense, the perfect Israel who redeemed his people, not out of the land of Aram, but from Egypt. And this rescuing points us to an even greater reality, the rescuing that God would bring us, not out of the physical land of Egypt, but the rescuing that he would bring us from sin and from death. And that's why Jesus came. Right? He came to free us from being idol worshipers to being God worshipers. Through his own death on the cross and his own resurrection from the grave where he died on the cross for our pride. He died on the cross for our deception. He died on the cross for our idolatry so that through faith in him, he would give us a new heart and that through the Holy Spirit that would live in us, he would give us new desires to want to love and serve the living God so that we'd be free from giving our hearts to idols in our lives and then free then to worship and serve the living God. And that's who we celebrate this afternoon. That no matter what we struggle with, we have the power of the Spirit in our lives. Unlike Israel back then, we have God's Spirit living in us, empowering us to live lives that are dependent upon Him, to live lives that are humble, and to live lives that are worshipful to our God. And we celebrate what Jesus has done on the cross and freeing us to be able to enjoy this change. One of the ways we do that is through taking communion. And we're going to be doing that in a little while. And I want to encourage you as a follower of Jesus to take part in communion. To, to take of the cracker and the juice representing his body and blood. To eat and drink and be renewed in God's grace. And then secondly, a way that we respond to the gospel is through advancing the gospel through the local church. One of the ways we do that is through um, financial giving. You can do that on our website. Excuse me, at harbornewwater.org. So let's go ahead and respond now to the good news of Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. <coughs> Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray that we would continue to worship, enjoy, and be dependent upon you. We pray you use this time as a means to grow our affections for you, to grow our dependency upon you. 
Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're the God of redemption that enters into messy homes, messy families, messy communities, and messy lives in order to bring freedom, to bring life, to bring true contentment. And we celebrate that as we take communion now, as we sing to you. So continue, Lord, the good work that you're doing in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I encourage you, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, to enjoy and to celebrate communion. It's located on our back tables. Uh, or um, if you want to continue sitting and thinking about the good news that we have in Jesus, or if you're going to stand and prepare uh, to, to sing to our great Lord and our great King, let's go ahead and respond now to the gospel of Jesus. Thank you.